It's a particular kind of irony to be trapped in this place that is so beautiful and comfortable. It's all the trappings of material existence that Clay and Amanda would ever have wanted. But that place of refuge becomes a place of imprisonment, ultimately. Do you like books? I'm outlining a new writing project. Who wrote this book? Read it. Will you read it? Sometimes I'd write something. What are you writing? Have you written anything lately? I'm Amanda Stern, and this is Bookable. On today's show, would you like to get away from it all? Want to rent a house somewhere remote with no access to the internet overlooking the woods and a swimming pool? Sounds like heaven, right? But have you ever gone on a vacation that hasn't lived up to your expectations? Where things have gone wrong? Like, really wrong? We can get started. I feel well, our guest way, today... Like I'm not coming into it and can't answer. He's written so a book about a vacation I guess, I guess. where reality itself changes. And the consequences are global. Time for an introduction. I'm Ramon Alam, and I'm the author of Leave the World Behind. Ramon Alam! Usually what I say is that Leave the World Behind is a novel about a Brooklyn family of four who are heading out to Long Island for a holiday. They're going out to a kind of unfashionable part of Long Island, like not the place you go to buy luxury goods, the place where you go to sort of rent a house with a pool. Classic, right? A mom and dad and their two kids pack the car to escape the city for a little fun and relaxation. But just when you think not having the internet would be a godsend, it turns out it's the one time access to information is truly necessary. On the second night of their stay at this little house, there's a knock at the door. And, you know, they're in the middle of nowhere. They're not expecting anyone. No one knows that they're there. And they open the door and there's an older black couple standing there who tell them that this is their house. They've rented to them via Airbnb, and they've fled to this house because there's been a blackout in New York City. So the book shifts at that point from being a book about a family of four on vacation to being a book about a group of six people in a house under sort of strained circumstances. And there's where we've got to stop, because to say any more would give away the tectonic plate upon which this book is built. I don't usually care much about spoilers, especially when it comes to books. But I do think that there's a particular experience that I hope the reader has where the book shifts under your feet, the ground of the book shifts slightly under your feet, and you're surprised by where you end up. And so I I, I hope to preserve that experience for the reader, and hopefully they'll find that exciting. But that's sort of the premise of the book, and then they'll understand that the logic of the book changes early on. From Leave the World Behind, page 7. Amanda had found the place on Airbnb, the ultimate escape, the ad proclaimed. She respected the chummy advertising speak of the description. Step into our beautiful house and leave the world behind. Amanda had insisted upon this vacation. So soon, Rose would vanish into high school disdain. For this fleeting moment, the children were still mostly children. Even if Archie approached six feet tall. Amanda works at an ad agency in this very particular capacity where she's in charge of kind of making sure the clients are happy. Clay, Amanda's husband, is an academic. He's a professor of media studies. And 
the book even says that they don't really know, Amanda doesn't really know what media studies is. They have a very comfortable life and like a really lovely part of Brooklyn, but it's also the kind of life where it's, they want more and uh, they're middle-class people, but they're not rich and they know that they're not rich and they wish to be rich and they are attentive to the ways in which they want to have a material existence that's a little better than the one they can afford. And what about the kids? The kids, I find it so difficult to write about kids that in a way it's kind of like, it really shows my own hypocrisy that I attempted it in this book. Archie is 16. And so in many ways, he's just a cipher as I think adolescent boys can be. Like he's just kind of a boy. He's just like a teenage boy um, interested in, um, interested in the self, like, when we are inside of Archie's mind, he's mostly just thinking about himself. Rose, who is 13, but she's kind of a young 13. She's kind of an immature 13. She's still on that. She hasn't crossed that Rubicon out of babyhood quite yet. She can like solicit her parents help to turn on the television or like kind of demand that they pay attention to her or climb into bed with them. These things that like, kids usually stop doing right at that age. Um, I mean, you know, you can't sort of say all kids are the same, but I do think that that's sort of the end of your childhood. Rose and Archie both are, in the book, I think are really seen as distinct from the four adults in the work, that the adults don't know what's happening in the world. And much of the proceedings of the book is spent following these four adults as they talk around one another and try to figure out how to solve the problem that they think is in front of them. The children don't participate in that because children wouldn't, you know, children aren't treated as adults in those situations. And so they have a very different experience inside of the book. They kind of float through the book in a very different way than the adults do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're like lower to the ground. They, yes. Yeah. They're almost close to animal, actually. Yeah. I think. yeah. Oh, exactly. I felt, you know, it's funny, we're going to get there. But I felt that yeah. you treated the kids and the animals in this book with so much generosity and respect. Oh, um, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. But it's sort of the way that I feel that all kids and animals should be treated. I do um, think that kids and animals, like, there's like a pretty fun, there's a th- there's a porous barrier between those two states, between the state of being a child and the state of being an animal. And I mean, people are just animals, of course, but you're at your most animal psychologically and like bodily when you're a small child and like you haven't learned how to use the bathroom, for example. Like mm-hmm. you just exist in this very primal state that the process of um, maturation is a process and part of leaving that behind. Right. And also because neither of them really have the language to describe their emotional landscape, they're, they, ha- they rely much more on their intuition than adults do. And there's also a sense, I think, that maybe the children have a clearer connection to their own intuition than the adults do. That they're mm-hmm. able to listen, or they're, they're able to look at what is right in front of them and see it. Right. For example, like in a, in a very literal sense, there's a migration of deer happening in the book and none of the adults seem to notice it, but Rose notices it. And mm-hmm. 
part of that is just she just happens to be outside when that is happening. But also there's just this sense, I think, inside of the book that like the state of childhood ha- leaves you closer to that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That adulthood le- sort of severs you from your sense of instinct or your sense of place on the planet. Yeah, exactly. Because your focus is on different things. Like um, having a nice dishwasher. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> From Leave the World Behind, page 32. There it was. Undeniable. Noise. A cough. A voice. A step. A hesitation. That uncategorizable animal knowledge that there's another of the species nearby. And the pause pregnant to see if they meant harm. There was a knock at the door, a knock at the door of this house where no one knew they were, not even the global positioning system. The house near the ocean, but also lost in farmland, this house of red bricks painted white, the very material the smartest little piggy chose because it would keep him safest. There was a knock at the door. So it's... An older black couple, uh, G.H. is the man's name. His name is George, but he goes by his initials, G.H., which I love when I love when people go by their initials. I think it's very distinguished. <laughs> and his wife, Ruth. And, you know, they're a couple of a certain age. I, I imagine them being in their 70s, and they are quite distinguished, and they're well-to-do. She, You know, they are in a state of crisis because they've experienced this sort of scare in New York City that the power has gone out and they didn't know where to go. They live on the 14th floor of the building on the Upper East Side and they just decided to drive out to their country house, even though they had renters there. And of course, they're strangers to Clay and Amanda because this transaction between them as renters and owners has taken place on a cell phone. It hasn't taken place face to face. It's late at night. They're not expecting to see anybody it's a strange it's a strange moment. It's not there it's not Clay and Amanda's house, but they feel protective and they feel defensive. It is George and Ruth's house, but they don't Clay and Amanda don't necessarily believe them immediately. And part of the reason they don't believe them is because they're black. That their assumption is that these people are somehow criminals or that they couldn't that black people couldn't own such a nice house that it just throws them, it throws everybody off a little bit that that the people who own the house have to prove their ownership and that the people who are possessing the house are suspicious. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And this delusion of whiteness in this case is the belief that the house is their space yeah. and the black couple is intruding. When, yeah. in, in fact, they're the ones visiting. Um, so I thought I was hoping that maybe you could talk a little bit about that delusion of whiteness and what you were sort of yeah, play, I think playing with. So much of that has to do with money, right? The idea that like a financial transaction, the agreement between them to rent this house establishes some like actual ownership, which of course it does, right? If you have a lease, if you have rented a home, if you've rented an apartment from a landlord, like that apartment is yours and your landlord can't come inside. But that's not exactly what's going on inside of this book. And they turn to the comfort of like legal protection or financial protection over the kind of looking past the opportunity to have like a human moment of actual connection, right? That these people have arrived in crisis and 
rather than say like, what's happened? Are you all right? Like, tell us what's happened. They have, Clay and Amanda have this experience of saying like, well, who are you? Prove who you are. You must be criminals. We have a lease. We have all these rights. Like, how dare you ruin our vacation? I find that like very understandable though, in a way and very human and, but also very funny when Amanda. So when, when they arrive, Amanda worries um, that like they are going to be victims of some kind of sex crime, right? Like that, like, which is like something that would happen to you if you've watched too much law and order SVU, (laughs) as I think we all have, right? Like that you just assume like, Oh, well my 13 year old daughter is not going to be safe from this like person, this stranger who has arrived um, which is funny, I think, and especially as the book sort of unfolds, you realize how mistaken, how like what a misperception that is. But mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I mean, it's it's not, I don't think satire is exactly the word, but there is a kind of absurd thing that's happening right upon this moment of confrontation where everyone is overreacting in these very big and broad and strange ways. But there are ways in which we see people react all the time in society you know we see mm-hmm. this happen this happened um when this woman amy cooper confronted this man christian cooper in central park right earlier this mm-hmm. year we see this hysterical register of response over racial difference all the time and so it feels very familiar i think like so again it's like not exactly satire because really what i'm describing feels like entirely plausible mm-hmm yeah i mean you know to me it foreshadowed um the sense of having to um uh, contend with the changing shape of reality under your feet and grabbing for this lease is like proof of reality right which is not kind of like like it's not going to help you in the end right right? like in 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 a moment of emergency maybe you can take like a moral high ground, but I'm not sure a legal high ground is really going to protect you. You can't say like, well, how dare you do this to me? I'm an American citizen or something like that. It's like, well, you know, that's not how, that's not what's happening here. Like, you know, good luck. Good luck to you. Time for a short break. When we come back, technology breaks down, reality shifts, and we hear a voice in our head. Stick around. Welcome back to Bookable. I'm Amanda Stern, here with Rumana Lam, author of Leave the World Behind. There's a way that an author can use narration to intentionally make the reader uncomfortable. Ruman, he's one of them. The first few drafts of this book were written in the same close third person that you find at the outset of the book, right? Like the this is the this seems to be the dominant mode of the contemporary novel. At least the ones I see from my peers, right? I mean, I could be this is just my guess, but like we read books that are coming out right now and there's usually a he or a she that's so close to the psychology of the person being described 
that it's almost an eye, right? Like it's almost inside of that body. So he can talk about how, like the narrative can describe how it feels to be inside of that she, even though it maintains the distance of watching her from like, you know, the third person perspective. Mm-hmm. Initially the book was written that way. So that the reader was watching all six of these people with this particular discomfort. So the challenge is that the characters on the page do not know what is happening. That can really begin to irritate the reader because the reader needs to understand more than the characters do. And there's no way for the reader to understand something that the characters don't unless the book simply speaks to the reader. And so Once I realized that, I pulled the perspective back further and there is this omniscient voice that comes in. And actually it's there from the beginning now. So it's like, it's not that the, the omniscience is not introduced at a certain point. It's sort of there from the outset. Um, Mm -hmm. It was just a realization that came late in the drafts that the voice of the book knows something that people don't. And it starts to feed those details to the reader at a certain point. So something happens in the book. There's, uh, there's an unexplained incident. And the book will tell the reader, oh, here's part of the explanation. So it satisfies the reader's curiosity, but preserves the character's bafflement. And so you understand something these people don't. And so you feel, I mean, you feel afraid, I hope, for these people, but you also feel some comfort that the world has been explained to you. Mm-hmm. But I think the key is that, or, and for me, this is the key. I think for some readers, it's a frustration. The book doesn't explain everything. In fact, it explains very little. So I would say that the book probably explains like 25% of what is actually happening. And it will give you a couple of facts a plane has crashed, a movie star has been killed. Uh, a, somewhere in Maryland, a woman has turned on the bathtub and drowned her children. And the reader has to take those three pieces of information and try to force them to make sense, but they don't make sense. They make sense as, they, don't, they barely make sense as individual units of information, but when you force them together, they don't add up to some sense of like, okay, now I understand. But it strikes me that that is the contemporary condition that we get our push alerts on our cell phones, that we look at the headlines when we wake up in the morning and we have like tiny pieces of a story, but we don't have the full story. And I don't think we ever will. I just don't think that's how life works. And so if that, I mean, I do think that that is uncomfortable for some readers that the book is resisting telling you what's happening. But what I hope my hope is that you have this experience of saying, oh, I recognize this. I recognize this feeling because that is the feeling of real life. So what happens in this book is very big. It's very exaggerated. It's very unreal. But I think that I hope that the emotional reality feels very recognizable. From Leave the World Behind, page 57. Ruth paused in the living room to switch on the television. The screen was that vintage shade of blue from some simpler technological era. White letters important. Emergency broadcast system. There was a beep, 
then a quiet hiss, the sound of something that was not much of a sound, then another beep. They kept coming, the beeps. There was nothing but the beeps, steady, but not reassuring. No one in the book knows what's happening. They can't find out what's happening because their phones don't work. And, you know, it's this this reliance on technology has, you know, interfered with the way that we function without it. Yeah. Well, okay, so I think it is an open question what our technology is doing to our psyche. I really think it is is an unresolved issue. I don't think there's an answer because it's too new. Mm -hmm. So have you not felt a phantom vibration in your pocket, even if you don't usually have your phone on vibrate? Or you imagine it's rung, or you're look you're holding your phone and looking at it, and then you think, "Where's my phone? I need <laughs> to look at it." Or you're like looking at Twitter in one window, and then you open another window and you look at Twitter there too, and it's like, "What am I? <laughs> what am I doing?" I mean, I feel like we've all done that. Like, you know, um, my children are like part of the first generation that will just grow up with that being their reality. But we do know, I think that it has changed our relationship to like thought that like we, we, those fallow periods of inaction or like internal action only are curtailed because we're always engaged, right? You're lying in your bed right before bed or first thing in the morning, scrolling at your phone rather than kind of trying to wake up and thinking about the day that's just passed or thinking about the days to come or thinking about like how you need to get up and make breakfast. You may be thinking about that stuff, but it's buried beneath this process of like looking at Facebook or looking at Twitter or looking at Instagram or checking your email. And I also think it's created a very strange and false dependence on information on we seek, we seek sort of verified information in the phone and stop listening to the information to which we already have access as human beings. So a great example is that, um, so my husband and I, we go to the beach all summer with our kids. Uh, we drive out to Reese Beach, so like every Saturday. And we've been doing this for years. So we know how to drive there. Like I understand, we, you know, for 11 years, we've been taking the same route. Like I know how to do it. And yet we turn on the GPS, like out, out of force of habit. And so there's a way in which you're driving this very, very familiar drive and looking at your phone to remind you of the thing you already know how to do, mm-hmm. which is really strange. It's really strange. And that's also very new because of course, when I was younger um, and you had to make a long drive, like sometimes you would write the directions down and like mm-hmm. leave that piece of paper on the passenger seat and like consult it from time to time to try and figure it out. Or you would just write down the directions and really look at them and then be like, okay, I have to remember to take exit 46. So I'm just going to like pay attention. And then exit 46 comes up and you get off that exit and you're like, okay, what, what did it say? Like, was I supposed to turn left or do I need to stop and call someone? All of that relationship to our understanding of the world around us has changed. And I don't think we know yet what that means for the psyche. Um, But I do think there's a way in which, the joke is right. There's a joke. I think it says it in this, in the book, like the joke is that Zoe Deschanel commercial where she's like asking Siri, if it's raining 
even though it's <laughs> plainly raining outside, right? Like, do we need our phone to tell us what's right in front of us? And if the phone doesn't work, can we see what's right in front of us? <sighs> did you ever, did you ever scare yourself while you were writing this book? Uh, it's a scary book for sure. And I think that, so we talked a little bit about this sort of introduction of the omniscient voice and the omniscient voice is doling out certain details. Many of those details just have to do with the things that I find the most scary. Mm-hmm. A friend just reminded me of the story of Andrea Yates, which was a huge story when we were oh. children who drowned her children yeah. in the bathtub. So that's something that was like a psychic scar for me. And so that's some, a notion that is introduced in the book in one of those moments I'm terrified of elevators. So there's a moment in which someone is described perishing in an elevator. So yes, I think I was using the touchstones that I found most frightening or unsettling. But I think that that is also part of like the task. Like I'm asking the reader to look at something really closely. And so I kind of had to do the same thing. And I had to evoke that sort of emotional response in myself or be willing to. Alam, author of Leave the World Behind. It's published by Echo and is available now. Bookable is a production of Loud Tree Media. I'm your host, Amanda Stern. Five feet tall, but taller in third-person omniscient. We're produced by me, Bo Friedlander, and Andrew Dunn, who also mixed and sound designed the show. Bo is Loud Tree's editor-in-chief. Find us on the web at bookablepod.com and please subscribe and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. And if you want to learn more about our guests, find us on Instagram at bookablepod and follow me, your host, at a little stern. So it's obvious that I'm impressed with Ruman's writing, but after seeing a photo shoot of his apartment, I'm almost as impressed with his decorating abilities. But he sees room for improvement. Honestly, like I, I'm like really tempted to re, to undo everything, <laughs> or to change everything out. But like, that's a whole other project, and like, I do love right. it. You know. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, if you ever do redo anything and you have a um, apartment sale, you're letting yeah. me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we'll do. We'll I'll, do. I'll be waiting. I'm waiting outside your apartment right now. <laughs> This is Bookable.